I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. Ladies and gentlemen, today I have the honor of hosting the renowned philosopher, Mr. Peter Singer. With a career spanning decades, Peter Singer has made profound contributions to the fields of ethics and animal rights. He's challenged traditional frameworks and advocated for a more compassionate world. Peter's groundbreaking work in his influential book, Animal Liberation, has sparked a global movement, urging us to reconsider our treatment of animals and recognize their capacity for suffering. His arguments have reshaped the discourse on animal ethics and inspired countless individuals to reevaluate their choices and embrace a more ethical lifestyle. But Peter Singer's contributions extend far beyond animal rights. He's delved into pressing moral dilemmas such as poverty and the value of human life. Through his writings and lectures, he's brought attention to the plight of those living in extreme poverty, questioned our collective responsibilities, and urged us to take effective action to alleviate their suffering. A thought-provoking advocate of effective altruism, Peter has challenged us to reevaluate how we use our resources to make a positive impact on the world. His ideas have sparked conversations on the ethical implications of our everyday choices and have inspired a new generation to consider the global consequences of their actions. However, Peter's perspectives haven't been without controversy, and his ideas often challenge established norms and moral traditions. But it is through these challenging discussions that progress has been made and the boundaries of ethics are expanded. Here's a little taste of what awaits you on today's podcast. It's generally not a choice of, will I save the life of a child in a low-income country that I w- will never see or know even who it is, or will I feed my family? It's, it's much more often a case of, will I buy my child the latest uh, electronic uh, gadget, you know, the latest version of Xbox, or will I buy my child that, rather than save the lives of children who are strangers? And when, when you get to those choices, I think it's the ethical judgment is not so difficult. Uh, You ought to be saving the lives of strangers. And there's just no defence that you can make for taking animals away from the fields, away from the places where they increase the amount of food available to us, uh, confining them and then of course having to provide food for them, which always means that we end up with less food by feeding it to the animal than if we ate it directly. Peter, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Thank you, Anthony. It's good to be with you. Peter, we're going to talk a lot about suffering and it's, I'm not sure if it's quite its opposite, but for the early stages of this conversation, we'll say the opposite of suffering, which is happiness. I was before the conversation trying to cast my mind back as to when I first became aware of suffering in this world. Can you remember those early stages when you thought, okay, this is something that I don't know what the label is and that you later came to understand as suffering. I think most of us probably notice our own suffering first. Um, and I think that would be my own experiences of suffering where I can, I guess you remember my first day at kindergarten when I didn't know anyone there and I was rather <laughs> lonely and left out and, uh, you know, just sat there. And I, so there was a kind of psychological suffering that I experienced. Um, you know, then there are many other instances of, su- of suffering and some of them actually relate to animals, which obviously has become one of my concerns about animal suffering. So when I was quite young, um, some friends of my parents asked me if I wanted to go fishing. My parents didn't fish. 
but, uh, you know, I was curious and they said, sure, go. Um, and so we went to this beach, uh, sort of surf beach, and they had big fishing lines and threw the baited hook into the uh, ocean and a fish came out. And, you know, obviously it was suffering. It was struggling. And um, I think when they hauled it out and then they stabbed it with something and stopped wriggling. But, um, you know, that was an unpleasant experience for me, watching the suffering of that other being. And I never went fishing again. Uh, so... Those are two early experiences of suffering, I guess, my own and one of a creature quite different from me. Yeah, I remember, and it seems so trivial looking back, but I remember I was quite a keen football player, uh, soccer for the international audience. And as a young child, it seemed to be all that mattered in my life. I had very little interest in academic pursuits, relationships and everything were kind of run through a binary lens of will this make me more likely or less likely to be a professional footballer which seems absurd at such a young age but I remember not making a regional representative team and finding out they used to announce the team in the local newspaper on a Tuesday and I can't be more than 10 years of age and I remember just ball and crying in the school bathroom and this was my first experience to this term that now I've come to understand as suffering but I'm wondering is there objective agreement in the philosophical community as to what constitutes suffering? Uh, there'd be varying definitions I suppose um, I think there would be a, a broad agreement that suffering is a mental state a, a state of mind or a state of consciousness and that it's one that we regard as taken in itself, undesirable. So although we might think that sometimes suffering leads to some good purpose, it toughens our character, or, but in itself, I think philosophers would regard suffering as uh, an undesirable state of consciousness. And that's probably, there's probably a reasonable consensus on, on that account. But that phrase is quite key, taken in itself, because if we circle back to your fishing story, now through a different broader lens that isn't just the suffering of that animal what i'm kind of getting that is can suffering be justified you know that fish that suffered that day went onto your father's plate to feed the family uh well that one didn't actually i guess it went to the <laughs> friends who had taken me fishing um but sure look you know if their only way of eating had been to catch that fish and cause that suffering or even if that had been not their only way of eating, but the way of eating that caused the least suffering, then I would see that as justifiable. Um, it's not that it's always wrong to cause suffering. Rather, I think it's wrong to cause unnecessary or avoidable suffering where there isn't a compensating good that is achieved by the suffering we inflict on another being that outweighs the suffering. Is the suffering... I'm trying to think of the creative endeavors that came through periods of particular hardship where I'm recording this podcast now in Ireland. We, you know, it was a, a occupation from English soldiers for, you know, hundreds of years, but and crazy suffering and atrocities off the back of that on both sides. But as a result of that came some amazing poets, some amazing songwriters, some amazing playwrights. Is suffering ever justified in a creative sense? I don't see that as justifying it. And I think probably the, the poets or writers who suffered or who were very conscious of the suffering of those close to them, if given the choice between saying, look, imagine that this hadn't happened, but that you hadn't written as great poetry or plays, 
would you take that? And I would hope that they would say, yes, I'd take it. Uh, so I don't, I don't see that in itself as justifying the, the infliction of the suffering. And certainly not, of course, from the point of view of the people who were inflicting that suffering, because I'm sure they weren't even thinking about that. Yeah, it's, maybe with, with that line of thought, it becomes quite hard to justify the Holocaust based off the success of Victor Franklin's book. Uh, I certainly think it would be very difficult and even a lot of other literature that's quite moving that has come out of that. Um, no, it in, in no way compensates for it. Um, or, or No, you couldn't speak of justification in that context at all. But is there an argument that by eliminating suffering, there is in some sense that we dull or diminish the very top end of pleasure? I had an inspiring guest on the podcast a few months ago, Colin O'Brady, and he spoke one story. It really just, it sticks with me and I've recounted it on the podcast a couple of times. He rode across Drake Passage and he was one of the first men, if not the first man to row across Drake Passage. And he, re- he recalled in vivid detail this horrendous voyage across Drake Passage and one particularly arduous part of the voyage when a storm brewed up around him and he had to get into a crawl space with his companion on the boat and they were in there and basically fetal positions for days on end and they were sicking on each other, they were defecating on each other. It was horrible, extreme suffering by any objective measurement. But when the storm subsided, he said he's never enjoyed a sunrise and a placid, tame sea more than he did after that suffering. I think that probably even though he enjoyed that, he didn't enjoy it as much as he suffered during that experience. There's a, there's a phenomenon that has been uh, demonstrated by one of my uh, Princeton colleagues, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's a uh, psychologist uh, professor and uh, won the Nobel Laureate Prize in economics for his work about the motivation of so-called economic people. And that's uh, known as the um, illusion of um, the end state outweighing what has come before. Uh, and he demonstrated this quite empirically in in various ways. To give you a simple example, in one experiment, people had their arms in extremely cold water for a certain period of time, let's say three minutes or something. So, So it was really painful to keep your arm in that icy water. And in one group of people, after the three minutes in icy water, they uh, that was the end of the experiment. They could t- take their hand out. In the second group of people, instead of taking their hand out after three minutes, the water warmed slightly. It was still unpleasantly cold, but it wasn't as icy as it was for the first three minutes. And then they had, I don't know, an, an, another minute or two in that unpleasantly cold but not so icy water. And then they uh, asked the people to rate their experience. And the ones who had had the longer unpleasant experience actually rated the experience as less bad than the ones who had only had the three minutes. Uh, So Kahneman's interpretation of that is that they are focusing unduly on the end result of the uh, painful experience and they don't remember that well or it's not focused on the three minutes that was extremely painful because it seems obvious that the people who had the longer uh, 
arm in ice water or in cold water, um, actually suffered more. They suffered exactly the same for the first three minutes and then they had an additional unpleasantness. So I think that's something that was, was going on in the person who was rowing across Drake's Passage and had that terrible storm and suffered for several days, as you said, but then had this beautiful sunrise. So you know, he's thinking about how it ended and he's thinking, in, in his case, it ended pleasantly. But uh, I really doubt that the pleasantness of enjoying the sunrise compensated or in any way it could be equated with the uh, long period of suffering. Yeah, I would be inclined to agree. I don't know if we could say one compensates for the other. I don't, I wouldn't argue there's necessarily a one-to-one relationship. Like if I think about my worst day, my mom was very sick last year and, you know, almost passed away. Thankfully, she pulled through. But I look back at that as one of the worst days of my life. I wouldn't trade my worst day for my best day. I don't think there's a one-to-one relationship on them. But then is there basically what is the exchange rate between our good days and our bad days? Yeah, that's an interesting question that philosophers do sometimes discuss because we, we intuitively we might feel that uh, the scales of, of suffering and happiness or pain and pleasure are somehow equal. So you imagine a midpoint, let's call that midpoint zero, where you're neither suffering nor happy, neither in pain nor experiencing pleasure. And then we think of extreme pain as, let's say, being minus 100 and extreme pleasure as being plus 100. But most people, actually, when you ask them that test, they don't agree with that. And obviously, you didn't agree with that because you said just that when you said you wouldn't exchange uh, the worst day, you you wouldn't experience the worst day again for the, the best day. So I think that the scale is quite strongly skewed towards suffering. I I certainly agree with that. Even if you don't talk about a day, but you talk about an hour, you know, imagine the the most blissful hour you've ever experienced and then think about the most painful hour you've ever experienced or imagine the possibilities. Would you go through the worst pain for an hour in order to have the greatest pleasure? I, I quite often ask my classes that question. And it's always a minority who raise their hands and say they would. Sometimes it's, I don't know, 20, 25%. But it's always a clear minority. The among the class. <laughs> There's a few. Well, <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, maybe a few who are just not very sensitive to suffering in some way. I don't know. Um, but most people wouldn't. Is there so also I, a case of, uh, sorry to interrupt you, is there also a case with those that like our reference point for suffering is the worst thing that's ever happened to us. So if the worst thing that's ever happened to you is quite a tame experience, you're more likely to want to, not want to re-experience it, but tolerate re-experiencing that tame experience again versus if the worst thing you've ever happened to you is, you know, we reference Victor Franklin, like you escaped the Holocaust. The idea of journeying back to that again just seems so unimaginable that there's no upside that's worth that. Yes, um, it could be related to the kinds of experiences that people have had. That's true. But you know, if you just talk, if you did it about pain and pleasure rather than happiness and suffering, most people have experienced severe pain at some point. I mean, it's uh, hard to imagine that you didn't, you know, fall over and really get a bad pain from twisting your ankle, or that you didn't burn yourself in some way, or you didn't get a really painful bullet bite. You know, whatever it might be. So. It would be odd not to have gone through something that did cause a lot of pain. I I think maybe these people can't vividly recall that pain and what it was like anymore when they're sitting in my class. So if there is this idea of an exchange race that, you know, we're not entirely sure what it is, is it a a 10 to 1? Is it a 
a hundred to one between pleasure and suffering. Is suffering ever justified? Is there a, a common good that we can say justifies suffering? Oh, I think yes, you can justify suffering, and one one way of that's I think hard to deny, or well, at least from my ethical perspective, it would be hard to deny, is if by causing suffering to one person, you prevent similar or greater suffering to a, a large number of people. So uh, on my view, we're responsible for not only what we do, but also for what we choose not to do. So we're responsible for our omissions as well as our acts. And if somebody were to say, you know, and you have to assume that there's no option, uh, if someone were to say, well, you have to cause pain to this person for one hour, otherwise 10 people will experience exactly the same pain for an hour, so there'll be 10 times as much suffering. And, you know, some people some people will say, well, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to cause suffering to an innocent person. But my view is they are, in fact, then causing suffering to 10 innocent people. We assume everybody's innocent in this example. And they have to take responsibility for their decision. So in my view, it would be justified to inflict the suffering on one to uh, avoid the suffering on 10. And it becomes a more nuanced conversation when we talk about adding economic incentives to this. And on the podcast, I, I ponder a lot, you know, those, you know, stoic questions. What does it mean to be a good person? And I read recently uh, quite in-depth reports on the cobalt mining out in Congo. And it's just, I'm not sure if you followed how much of it, it's modern day slavery going on to extract this vital mineral we need for smartphones and electric cars. Is that ever justified? Is, is there a relationship of, okay, it's okay to have one person working down a mine because it's going to give a hundred people access to smartphones, which can make them happier. I struggle with my role in this as a consumer. I think we should all struggle with our roles in that um, because I don't really think it's justified. I mean, once smartphones are there, we all want to use them. Um, Do they actually make us happier overall? It's one of those difficult issues about new consumer goods. They certainly make us happy for a while. We're excited by them, but we tend to adapt to that. And on the other hand, there is the suffering of the uh, slaves or um, virtual slaves who are mining the, the mineral and as we've been saying, suffering seems to be more extreme. It seems to take quite a lot of happiness to outweigh an amount of suffering. So, no, I think really it's not justified. Whether we can stop it is another question. I mean, it's clearly the value of the mineral, the market forces, um, and the difficulty of having properly policed regulations and law and order in that part of the world. For the first time in years, I have really big targets that I'm super passionate about this summer. And although the warmer months are approaching, I don't want to slip into that trap I see so many riders falling into. Just riding around with no focus and no aim with their friends simply because the good weather is starting to arrive. I'm still using my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way into my target events, Rift, Migration Gravel and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be partnering with Wattbike. The Wattbike, Adam, it's sitting next to the desk in the recording studio. And if I have an error between interviews, I jump on. It's removing all those friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, connection issues. It just works every single time. 
The Atom is perfect for riding Zwift because it has those crisp gear changes. Boom, boom. 1% power accuracy and max gradient capability of 25%. If only my legs had a max gradient capability of 25%. Even if I'm riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding that custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route, I'll select a more climbing suitable gear ratio. It's the business. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, if you're looking to stay sharp this summer and not lose that hard-earned fitness over the winter, I couldn't recommend the Whoop Bike setup any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whoopbike.com now and check out their full range. Does the end ever justify the means? Like with this podcast, I've, you know, I like to think it's doing some good in the world. And, you know, on a small scale, I have had people reaching out to me saying it's got them through really, really difficult times. The fact that for me to create this podcast and put it out to the world, I need access to smart devices, laptops, cameras, mobile phones. Is there a sense that it's ever justified for a greater good? Yes, I think um, the end uh, can justify the means, and uh, I think we we have to accept that um, the way we live in complicated societies that there are things that we ought to do that it may be bad for some people, but uh, if they are good for many people, uh, they can be justified. Or, as I said before, if they prevent greater badness for a lot of people, that's also a case of the end justifying the means. So um, whether what you're talking about in terms of putting out this podcast is actually a case of the end justifies the means depends on whether we really think of the means as, as bad. You're thinking of them as bad because you're using equipment that contains cobalt, which was mined under conditions that are deplorable. But I would focus on the question, would this stop if you stopped using smartphones? And and the answer to that is obviously not. So what is a strategy that is going to stop or minimize the evil that is being done to these people? And it's, it's possible that through your communications with a large number of people, you can make people more aware of this and that they can put some pressure on governments to not import minerals that are mined under these conditions. And that could eventually change things you know it it often seems very hard but we do succeed in making progress in in this kind of area there are abuses and forms of slavery that have been prevented and i uh, think things like gender discrimination sexual harassment as well so um you know i i don't see it as a bad thing to continue to be using a material that it would be better wasn't produced in the way it was if you're actually perhaps contributing to ending that process. Does proximity matter? So if the cobalt mine was on my doorstep in Dublin, do you think that would be a more cutting, visceral feeling for me and I'd be more likely to err on the side of not consuming these exploited minerals? Psychologically, you probably would be more likely, but does it matter morally? I don't really think so. Um, Many years ago, I I wrote an article about the obligations of affluent people, by which I mean people like us, to help people in extreme poverty in low-income countries. And I used, uh, you know, because some people will say, well, I'm not responsible for the poverty of people in low-income countries, so therefore I don't have any obligation to do anything about it. And to to counter that uh, argument, I asked people to imagine that they're walking past a, a shallow pond and that a small child, just a toddler, has fallen into the pond, and the pond is too deep for that child 
to stand so the child is going to drown unless someone jumps into the pond and rescues the child. And guess what? You're the only person around, so it has to be you if the child is not going to drown. And there is some cost to it for you. You're going to ruin your nice clothes that you put on this morning because you're going somewhere special. I think most people would agree, and again, this is another question I ask my classes repeatedly, and either unanimously or you know, virtually unanimously with one or two contrarians who hold out, people say it would be wrong to ignore the child in the pond because you were not responsible for the child having fallen into the pond and it's not your child. And they say, you know, in fact, they don't just say it would be wrong, they usually say it would be monstrous to put the preserving the cleanliness of your shoes or clothes above the life of a child. Um, and then I argue that, uh, well, if that's the case, then we ought to be doing something to help people in extreme poverty because I don't think proximity does make a difference here. Uh, as I say, psychologically, it makes a difference. I'm sure you'd be more likely to save that child than you are to give a substantial donation to one of the organizations helping people in extreme poverty. But if you think about it, and if you can be equally certain that you can save a child in a distant country as you would be that you can save the child in the pond, I think the obligation is just the same. In that case, does the immediacy matter? Does that sway people to take more action? The child is in, you know, to use a, a term we always hear in these sort of CIA movies, clear and present danger. Uh, like the, the child is imminently in threat if you don't take action right now. But we can maybe, we can reconcile or we can justify in our own mind our inactivity or me wearing a, a fancy pair of Nike Air Jordans and deciding to buy those instead of making a charitable donation because it's not clear that the causal link between me buying those Jordans and that life I'm going to save is imminent. It's not imminent, but um, I think it's pretty clear that there is a connection between donating a certain sum, and we can debate what that sum is, to an effective charity. And again, we need to know which charities are effective. But as it happens, I, I founded an organization called The Life You Can Save, which exists just to curate a list of highly effective charities helping people in extreme poverty. So um, if you're uncertain, uh, just go to thelifeyoucansave.org and you can find out which they are. And I think that it's pretty clear then, even if the danger is not imminent, that you are going to be able to save a life. You won't know whose life it is you've saved probably. Let's say you donate to the Against Malaria Foundation and the amount you donate buys a lot of bed nets and they're distributed in regions where children frequently die from malaria. And they, you know, statistically, you can say this number of nets would save a child's life. I think that's just as, just as important as saving the life of a child right in front of you. So, you know, they're, they're both children, they're both lives to be saved. Uh, yes, one is present and psychologically is going to pull you more strongly, but ethically, I don't think we should distinguish between them. And is your book, I know I picked up a copy of The Life You Can Save in audio book form. I think it's just over 10 years old now, so congratulations on that. Is that still available free online? Indeed, and uh, what you get free online is not 10 years old. It's the 10th anniversary edition. So it's oh, very been, nice. It, it got fully updated, and it's, uh, it's uh, available not only as an audio book uh, free, but also as an ebook. So if people would like to read it, uh, they're very welcome to go there and uh, download either the ebook or the audio book version. 
and I'll, I'll link that up in show notes for people for your convenience so you don't have to stop cycling and cause a massive crash right now but uh, Peter to run with that thought experiment of the drowning child I think most balanced members of society will agree that's a pretty given the choice between ruining your good suit or maybe your Rolex watch and saving a child's life it's a quite an obvious choice you should save the child but what if the choice was between saving a drowning child or saving a close family member like how do we reconcile this moral obligation to help others who may be strangers with that natural tendency to prioritize the well-being of those closest to us i think if somebody chooses to save a family family member in preference to the child of a stranger. You know, that's anyway completely excusable. I, I don't think we should blame somebody or criticise them for doing that. Even, and this is a tougher case, if let's say they could have saved two children who were stra- the children of, of strangers or one close family member. I think we we are the kind of beings for whom close relationships and especially family is is very important. In general, that's a good thing. Families look after each other. They're really important for people's happiness, that they are part of a close and loving family. So uh, I think that we shouldn't blame people for, for doing that. But, you know, if you wanted to look at it from a completely impartial perspective, you might say, Yes, it would have been better if they had saved the two children um, rather than one family member. It's hard for me to to deny that. You know, when we take life and death, it's quite black and white. Should we save a child who is a stranger versus should we save a family member? You know, I think like you're saying, a lot of people we can justify maybe saving the family member, but when the decision then becomes well, should I save a child versus should I feed two family members and alleviate some of their suffering? It's not as black and white and it's a little bit more of a, we have a tendency to prioritize those closest to us. We're reducing their amount of suffering, but there's a victim to this reduction in the amount of suffering they're feeling. Yes, I think I agree that those cases are more difficult um, and it's hard to say where you would want to draw the line. But in, in practical terms, uh, we draw the line so far in favour of our own children that I think it's it's clearly indefensible because it's generally not a choice of will I save the life of a child in a low-income country that I w- will never see or know even who it is um, or will I feed my family. It's, it's much more often a case of will I buy my child the latest uh, electronic uh, gadget, you know, the latest version of Xbox or my, my child wants a... The, the new iPhone, um, will I buy my child that uh, rather than save the lives of children who are strangers? And, you know, when, when you get to those choices, I think it's the ethical judgment is not so difficult. Uh, you ought to be saving the lives of strangers. It really shines a lens on our own behavior. Like I'm thinking recently I bought a new pair of runners, my old set of runners, you know, they'd had a they'd had a good life, but they'd had a hard life and they were blistering me up pretty bad. And I decided to buy a new set of runners for roughly 200 euro. Would that 200 euro have been better allocated to reduce suffering elsewhere in the world? And how do we decide, like, what's the the prism through our decision-making matrix through which we make these decisions? Because it seems like any consumer decision we make in the Western world, that resource will be better allocated to somebody more deserving. 
Well, you probably need something on your feet and it's good that you run. Um, it keeps you fit and healthy and better able to function and do other things that are good in the world. Uh, the real question, I think, is do you need an expensive brand name sneaker or can you get something else from, you know, I don't know, Marks and Spencer or whoever puts out alternative low-income sneakers in, in your country um, that don't have a brand but essentially are pretty difficult to distinguish from the, the high brand names but it cost a quarter as much? That's more like the kind of question I think we should be asking ourselves. How do you decide what portion of your income or somebody else's income should be allocated to charitable causes? Well, if you, if you uh, look at that book of The Life You Can Save and if your listeners look at when they've downloaded it, they'll find a table at the back which suggests a percentage of income. And it, like tax tables, it's a progressive increasing. So it starts off at 1%. For people who are earning, um, say, up to forty thousand US dollars, um, which is enough to to live on uh, for a single person anyway, but definitely is not a particularly comfortable uh, life. And then, as income goes up, I raise the percentage, but I never raise it actually higher than than one third of a person's income. Um, and some people have said, "Well, you should have. You know, once you're earning a million dollars, you could." could be giving 90% and you'd still be more comfortable than the person on 40,000 who is um, giving 1%. Uh, so, you know, yes, it could have been going higher. But I wanted to show that I think there are substantial things that most people can do that are not going to cause them any real hardship, any real sacrifice. And that's why I start low but increase. Um, now, you could say, well, you know, isn't that, aren't those figures a bit arbitrary? Um, and I suppose they are really somewhat arbitrary. I was wanting to show that without sacrifice, we could give enough to really overcome extreme poverty in the world. Um, maybe, maybe there would still be pockets of extreme poverty in places where there's civil war or short term where there's uh, immediate drought or famine, but we could really cope with all of, of that. So it wouldn't be lasting or large scale. And that's why I chose those figures. And I can't really say that's exactly the right place to draw the line, but it seems to me to be uh, a reasonable sort of standard that people could meet um, and feel okay about what they're doing and not feel that they've you know, really suffering greatly themselves from it. How do people begin to understand at what point they should start prioritizing the the well-being of others as opposed to the well-being of themselves. Like what is, so assuming right now somebody is making zero charitable donations, where do they start to understand, okay, maybe for me I could, yes, I pay a Wi-Fi provider every month, but also the cafe, which is, you know, 10 meters from my house, has free Wi-Fi. Is that $60 per month? Would that be better spent? How do I start to understand that decision-making matrix? Or is that something people just need to trial and error and see where they're on? Yeah, I think it's I think it's trial and error. See see how uncomfortable it is, you know. By the way, presumably the, the cafe would want you to buy some coffee when you're there. They wouldn't just have <laughs> you sitting there all week um, to use their Wi-Fi, and that might add up to more than $60. But, you know, speaking of cafes, I mean, this is, this is something that, because I'm older than you, that has happened over my lifetime. I find it astonishing the number of people who go out and pay whatever it is, you know, four or $5 euros, for a cup of coffee at a cafe when they could make themselves a cup of coffee for 
um, significantly less than the one dollar. Um, so you know, I, I'm not sure what the, the, the cafe culture is really, uh, how that's caught on, and it's certainly very different from uh, when I was young. It's funny, I was having this conversation with my dad only yesterday. Uh, he grew up quite working class in inner city Dublin and restaurants were just starting to emerge, not in the same proliferation we have them around now, but through the 60s, there were starting to be occasional restaurants open up. So he said he'd walk past the restaurants with his father, but he'd never been in a restaurant because they were working class and couldn't afford it. And he asked his dad one day, like, why were people in there eating? And he said, oh, these are people who can't afford to have kitchens in their own houses, so they have to go out and eat <laughs> Someone else's house. When we think about that drowning child, uh, not to, to linger on this point one further time, the drowning child and the, the notion of me going to the coffee shop and spending the extra money on coffee, there's always, as we call it in economics, externalities. There's always unintended consequences. If we see a drowning child, but that drowning child is not a drowning child. He's a corrupt leader of some oppressive culture. Can we ever justify allowing that person to drown? I think you could if you know that. And if you know that if this oppressive leader drowns, uh, then somebody much better, less oppressive, will take over the leadership of that country, especially if this uh, oppressive leader is actually... Uh, you know, arresting, torturing, perhaps executing uh, opponents, then yes, I think you can justify that. I was fascinated coming through law school with an area in jurisprudence and, you know, for listeners in some cultural context, in the wake of the atrocities that happened in the Holocaust, a lot of German soldiers were brought to trial and brought to justice. And they were charged with, you know, murder, mass murder, facilitating it. But when they brought them to trial and they said, well, we'll point to the laws which I've broken. They hadn't broken any laws. They were following German laws. So it's given rise to this area, which is fascinating of, is it okay to break an unjust law? Is there times when it's okay for our moral compass to supersede the legal requirements or framework? Yes, I certainly think it is. In fact, it's not merely okay to break an unjust law in, in cases of, of those kinds of laws. Uh, I think it's obligatory to do so. And I think uh, the defense that they were obeying orders or not breaking any law is not a valid defense. I think um, some things are so obviously morally wrong that we ought not to be following the law. Now, of course, you know, I, maybe some of them would have been uh, executed for disobeying orders, or some of them, I think a lot of Germans uh, might have been sent to the Russian front where um, conditions were very severe and many of them would have died. So again, it's kind of understandable for those, as I say, especially for those at the lower ranks who really didn't have, you know, had only terrible choices. It's It's understandable that they should have done this and we should not think of them in the same way that we think of the Hitler's or Goebbels or Eichmann's or um, people like that. But um, still, what they did was clearly wrong and some punishment was justified. I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Jatelis, on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. 
Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment, but they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage, and resisting the urge to relocate production, like so many competitors, to lower-cost labour markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. Let's take a little bit of a a left turn. I want to talk about the concept of fairness. And fairness is so central to sport and the idea of inclusion in sport. I think most reasonable observers will say that if there's a game of football going on and there's five kids playing and one kid is sitting on the sideline as excluded and wants to participate but is not allowed to participate, this kind of pulls at our idea of inclusion and fairness. We have a very controversial situation going on in sport at the moment with trans athletes and the idea of not excluding one category of trans athletes, but by including trans athletes in female sport, it's potentially de facto excluding the competitiveness of some females within that genre. How do we balance this sense of inclusion with this sense of fairness? I I think we need to ask why we have uh, a category of uh, sports that is divided between males and females. And if the reason for doing this is that people who are biologically male have advantages in some areas, so for example, let's say in swimming, they have bigger shoulders and they're stronger and they uh, swim faster than uh, than females over various distances. Uh, and if we think that's important to give females a chance to compete not against males, then I think we should hold that if the person who is a a trans woman actually still has advantages, uh, for example, through having gone through puberty as a male and therefore having those big, strong shoulders and muscles, even if they've taken steps to reduce their testosterone levels, they may still have advantages that males have. And I think it's reasonable to say, you know, yes, of course, we recognize you as a woman, you can dress as a woman, we can use a female uh, bathrooms, uh, you know, in many ways. But um, we want to have a sports category that those who are biologically female and went through puberty as females um, can compete against each other. So uh, I think that it's reasonable for the Swimming Federation to have made the decision it did and for the uh, World Athletic Federation, I believe, has just made a similar decision. I think those are reasonable judgments in the circumstances. Yeah, I think Sebastian Coe, the president of IOC, came out and I think the exact sort of idea is if you've undergone and gone through male puberty, you're now going to be excluded from female sport. But it seems like that's a partial solution because now we have a number of trans athletes who are excluded from sport. They can participate in male sport but they're, in a lot of cases, undergoing hormone suppressants, which are going to make them super uncompetitive in male sport. Also, they don't identify as male, so there's going to be a social stigma, identity crisis. So I think they're de facto excluded from sport at the moment. Is there a need for a third category, or how do we balance this? 
I think a third category would be good. Yes, I mean, it, I think you know we 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 have the Paralympics in which we have a variety of categories for people with different abilities, and I think we could do the same for um, uh, people who are transgender. That um, they could compete against each other in in certain categories. Um, you can look at that their levels of testosterone, for example, would be would be relevant, and uh, the period of their life at which they transitioned. What's your thoughts on doping in sport? You know, I I, I think that it's it's a strange situation, really, that um, we allow people to do all sorts of things that give them advantages, like train at high altitude, um, which again, you know, not everybody can afford to do. So it does mean that it isn't totally a level playing field, and yet we don't allow them to take various uh, substances. So I, you know, I, I don't have a particular solution to this problem. I obviously, if you just did allow doping, then um, everybody would have to do it if they wanted to have a chance of competing, uh, and I don't think that would be a good thing either. So I understand why people are trying to keep doping out of sport, but um, it does mean we draw lines in strange places. Yeah, is there just a need for a line to be drawn, and then we can? start debating where that line gets drawn. But the idea of not drawing a line at all intuitively feels wrong. Like as, you know, my sister had her first baby five weeks ago, baby boy, and the idea that he could be grown up in a sport with no guardrails or no regulations. Because we all get into sport at an early age at a basic level because we want to be healthier. And the idea of there being no guardrails as to what it can take where performance is only prioritized with no eye on the health consequences of that performance is a scary world. I totally agree. Yes, I I do think that we want to have sports where people don't have to harm themselves in order to do to succeed. Yeah, you have like Usain Bolt running a two-second 100 meters and then he explodes and bursts into flames at the end of the 100 meters. I don't know <laughs> if we want that. <laughs> no, right. Is doping in sport ever justified? To, to obtain an unfair advantage over other competitors who are not doping? No, I don't think so. Um, and look, you can imagine cases, right? Somebody has to win the, the competition because otherwise their whole family will starve to death and uh, it's not so important for anybody else that they win it. So yes, you could imagine, you could say that that individual is justified in, in doping if that enables them to win and prevents their family starving. Uh, but you know, in, in the more realistic situations, I don't think it's justified. Peter, I know one of your areas, and we've we've talked a lot about suffering and the alleviation of suffering. And one of the areas that you're super passionate advocate on is the alleviation of animal suffering. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about how this came to be a topic that you feel so strongly about? Yes, and it's it's interesting and it surprises many people because um, I'm not actually an animal lover. That is, I've never been the kind of person who's wanted to live with uh, a dog or cat and I don't have any companion animals now. It came rather uh, to me as learning about the way that the animals I was eating had been treated in order to be turned into the meat that I was consuming at that time. And I grew up in Australia. Australians eat a lot of meat. In fact, when I went to Oxford to do my graduate studies, a lot of people said, oh, it's terrible in England. The meat is such bad quality. And that's quite ironic because within about a year, I started learning about how animals are treated in factory farms and I became a vegetarian. So it's really because I feel that uh, there isn't a justification 
for saying this is not a human being, therefore it's okay to lock this animal up in a factory farm and uh, essentially treat it like a machine for converting grain or soybeans or fish meal into meat and do it by whatever method will produce the cheapest product. Uh, and that's essentially what we've got. You know, it's, there have been some regulations over the 47 years since I wrote Animal Liberation, but uh, essentially that is still the situation. How do we balance or do we get to decide when we're balancing or do we defer to health experts? How do we balance the idea of animal suffering on the one hand, maybe diminished cognitive performance, diminished physical performance or diminished health by switching from a fully you know, balanced diet, including meats, fresh fruits, vegetables, to an entirely plant-based diet? I don't think there's actually any conflict there. Um, I think a, a plant-based diet can give you everything that you need, including everything you need for um, high performance or for extreme stamina. Um, and in my new and completely revised uh, updated version of Animal Liberation, Animal Liberation Now, I refer to some of the athletes who are doing that. Um, so there are top NBA basketballers, uh, there are ultramarathon runners, somebody who held the record for hiking uh, the Pacific Crest Trail in the United States all the way from Mexico to Canada was a vegan. You know, I, I think that uh, there are actually health benefits from cutting out meat from your diet. Um, and uh, there's also, I should add, a, a public health benefit because factory farms are breeding places for new viruses. And I think uh, we run a great risk of creating new viruses. The, the swine flu pandemic clearly came out of factory farms uh, and uh, avian flu uh, is also a, a risk there. So I think we'd be better off without these factory farms from uh, everybody's health as well as our own. So we're drawing a, a couple of distinctions and just to, to hone in on these. So you're not morally opposed to animals being eaten for food. It's more the factory farming sense. If somebody was to fish or hunt their own animals, do you think there's a problem with that level of suffering to facilitate a diet? Or is it entirely the factory farms that is the sort of mass suffering that needs alleviation? Uh, I think it, you know I'm I'm mostly focused on on the mass suffering and what we're doing to animals in factory farms, not only confining them but breeding them to grow so fast that uh, they suffer from essentially having immature legs to support their body weight. And you know it's ironic because a lot of people say, oh, hunting is terrible. But but if somebody goes out and hunts deer, and let's say the deer are we've eliminated the predators, and so deer are overpopulating their region and somebody is actually a good shot and you can put a bullet through uh, a vital organ of a deer, the, the head or the heart, so that the deer will essentially die within a second or two. That's a much more ethical thing to do than to go to a factory farm or to go to a supermarket and buy a factory farm product. So yes, you know, I'm not, I'm not actually saying that I think it's fine to go hunting, especially not just for sport rather than for, to feed yourself. But I am more concerned with the things that we do on an industrial mass scale to tens of billions of animals each year. It's interesting because I've had renowned hunters and renowned vegans on the podcast. And while I would have thought they were at total polar opposite ends, when you unpack and you have quite nuanced discussions with them, you find a thread that links both of them is actually animal welfare and the idea of minimizing 
in one sense or totally alleviating animal suffering in the other sense. I was very surprised by that. Yeah, I think I think there are hunters who regard themselves as ethical hunters because they are concerned not to inflict suffering on animals. Um, and again, as I say, particularly where those animals have lost their natural predators and are, would be out of balance with the environment if they're not hunted. There's a there's a kind of a, a defense that you can make for that. Um, and there's just no defense that you can make for taking animals away from the fields, away from the places where they increase the amount of food available to us, uh, confining them, and then, of course, having to provide food for them, which always means that we end up with less food by feeding it to the animal than if we ate it directly. So uh, there's really no justification in terms of feeding the world. There's no justification in terms of necessity for our health. Um, all of those things go in the opposite direction. Is that true that there's no necessity for our health from it? I'm not sure from my conversations I've had on the podcast and the bit of research I've done to it. I don't believe there is a consensus. I know there's vegan athletes and vegetarian athletes who have accomplished amazing feats, but I don't know if there's a broad line academic consensus that that is the best way to eat for health, for performance. I'm not arguing that it is necessarily better than eating modest amounts of animal products. Um, I'm arguing that that it's an adequate diet for, for being healthy. I, I don't think there's any real argument for saying that you can't be healthy on a plant-based diet. And certainly, I think there's a very strong argument for saying that you would be healthier if you ate fewer animal products than most people in affluent countries do. If you look at the the, the Lancet had this thing called the EAT, E-A-T uh, Lancet Commission, looking at diet and health, and uh, a large number of experts there who recommended a diet that uh, cuts out basically red meat and processed meat that has small amounts of other animal products, um, including fish, uh, and said that this diet would be better both for the health of the planet and for the health of people eating it, that it would dramatically reduce heart disease and cancers of the digestive system. They're almost two totally different things, aren't they? Like if you have a chance to go fishing, you know, the fish, he's swimming along, he's in his natural habitat, he's happy, and then oh, hooked to the head, he's gone. But if you go to a fishery, like I went to a fishery, I'd say 10, 12 years of age on a school tour, and there's a visceral experience that stays with you forever. It's a it's a horrible place. It's overcrowded. It's unhygienic. And these are the fish we're eating. It's under like how big a role education at those formative years is in this sort of battle. It's really difficult. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you raised the issue of fish because this is rapidly growing, uh, so-called aquaculture or basically fish factory farming. I just saw an estimate that there's 124 billion fish raised and killed in factory farms worldwide each year. That's, you know, it's really hard to think of that number of fish. And again, um, this is actually wasting food because in addition to that 124 billion fish who are raised and sold, it's estimated that something like 500 billion fish are fished out of the sea, ground up into fish meal or fish pellets and fed to those fish because the fish that for which the highest prices are paid, like salmon, are carnivorous fish. So, uh, you know, I, I saw an estimate that to raise one salmon uh, to about, you know, two and a half kilos or something, four or five pounds, um, the salmon will eat 47 fish. Um, so, so 47 other fish have, have suffered and died 
to be just for that one salmon that somebody then buys and eats. Your book, Animal Liberation, now is out on May 23rd. Where does it sit in terms of when you look back at your bank of literature that you've contributed to the world? Where does this sit in terms of something you're proud of? Uh, I am proud of of Animal Liberation, the original 1975 book, and, and then I updated it in 1990, but this is the first update since 1990. So I'm, I'm pleased that the book actually has never been out of print in all those years. People are still buying and reading it, but I'm a bit embarrassed because it has been so out of date until now, and now at least it will be updated. But, you know, I, I do think that it contributed to, to the modern animal movement. You know, I, you could never say that one book is responsible for it, but a lot of influential people in the movement have said this. Um, and, uh, you know, I have quotes from the book. Ingrid Newkirk, who founded People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, perhaps the largest group that's taking a radical stance for animals, um, says that she read animal liberation and that's what put her on that path towards founding uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals. Uh, Jane Goodall became a vegetarian after reading Animal Liberation and uh, said if she'd had the new edition, it would have happened sooner. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm pleased to have, uh, to have influenced uh, a lot of people who in turn have influenced many others. Peter, it's been brilliant fun talking animal rights, suffering, happiness, trans in sport. It's been a wide ranging conversation. Thanks very much for taking the time to chat today. And for anyone listening, I'm going to link up Peter's new book, which is coming out on May 23rd, Animal Liberation Now, and a lot of his, fa- a lot of my favorites of Peter's writing in the show notes down below. So you can pick all those up. Peter, you are a legend. Please keep doing what you're doing. And thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks very much, Anthony. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.